Today is Wednesday, May the 3rd, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Microsoft-branded mice and keyboards are going away after 40 years. Higher-end Surface-branded accessories will carry on, at least for now. Microsoft started selling its first computer mouse in 1983, a year or two before the Macintosh and other computers made pointing devices standard issue, and two years before the first version of Windows was released. The Microsoft Natural Keyboard followed in 1994. Since then, the company has offered a range of Microsoft-branded PC accessories from successful ones like the Microsoft Ergonomics Keyboard to the short-lived experiments like Microsoft Sidewinder gamepads and joysticks. Microsoft-made mice and keyboards aren't going away, but the Microsoft brand name is. The company said it would stop selling Microsoft-branded keyboards mice, and other accessories following a series of layoffs that affected its hardware division. The company will refocus its effort on higher-end Surface-branded keyboards and mice, which represents just a tiny fraction of all the accessories Microsoft currently sells. Going forward, we are focusing on our Windows PC accessories portfolio under the Surface brand, Microsoft Dan Laycock said. We will continue to offer a range of Surface-branded PC accessories, including mice, keyboards, pens, docks, adaptive accessories, and more. Existing Microsoft-branded PC accessories like mice, keyboards, and webcams will continue to be sold in existing markets at existing sell-in prices while supplies last. The biggest question is whether Microsoft intends to keep making cheaper more budget-friendly accessories under the Surface brand, or if it wants to discontinue these products entirely and focus entirely on higher-end, higher-margin devices. Microsoft ergonomic keyboard and mouse could be on the chopping block as the company refocuses on Surface-branded accessories. Microsoft's cheapest Surface-branded wireless mouse, for example, usually costs $40, and higher-end versions can cost even more. A Surface-branded Bluetooth chiclet keyboard normally runs $100. Non-Surface-branded versions of functionally similar products cost about half as much, though they're generally also made of cheaper materials. Microsoft also offers a range of ergonomic accessories like the ergonomic keyboard and mouse, the Sculpt Comfort Desktop, and the Sculpt Ergonomic Desktop, that don't currently have Surface equivalents. Microsoft did offer a Surface ergonomic keyboard at one point, though it has been discontinued. There also aren't any inexpensive standalone webcams in the current Surface lineup. 
Five popular apps drain your battery. Delete them now to see instant speed upgrade. If you're struggling with a fast draining phone battery, some of your apps could be to blame. Not everyone realizes that the most popular apps can be the biggest culprits of battery vampires and you may even consider deleting some. Some apps drain your battery more than others and you may not want them on your device. Number one and two on this list are Facebook and its separate messenger app. According to Uswitch, the Facebook and Facebook Messenger apps are two of the biggest drains on batteries. Facebook can run constantly in the background, accessing a wide range of permissions. This is draining for your battery, even when you think you're not using your phone that much. If you notice your battery drains quickly, then apps like Facebook could be part of the problem. You can either change the settings so the apps aren't refreshing in the background, or you could delete them if you don't use them that often. Then there's Uber. The Uber app, along with several other travel apps, has found itself the battery drain list. It's obviously quite useful, so you won't want to delete it unless you don't use it. Phone storage app company pCloud produced a list of the most battery draining apps, and Uber came in number three. Surprisingly, Facebook was only number five on that list. Then you have Fitbit. Lots of people use Fitbit, so it's unfortunate that the app came out on top in the pCloud battery drain study. It was listed along with the Verizon app as the highest brain battery drainer. The app experts explained in their study, Fitbit and Verizon came out on top as the ultimate phone killers. Both apps permit 14 out of 16 available features to run in the background, specifically including the four most demanding, the camera, location, microphone, and Wi-Fi connection. This earned these apps the highest score in the study. Then finally, you have Snapchat. Lastly, Snapchat has been flagged as a big battery drainer for devices. Snapchat is very draining. You can always disable this setting within the app, but that will restrict how you can use some other features. Amazon begins another round of mass layoffs. The company's Amazon Web Services Cloud Arm is one of its largest and biggest earning segments. But even their employees aren't immune to getting laid off. Amazon has officially started up its most recent round of employee reductions. The company is kicking off its previously announced layoffs of 9,000 by axing workers in its Amazon Web Services and human resources sectors. The cuts come according to plan as an internal memo from the tech giant last month hinted that AWS and HR staff would be on the chopping block. But last week was the beginning of the actual layoffs. Impacted employees in the United States, Canada, and Costa Rica have all received notice. Staff in other regions are set to find out the status of their positions. It is a tough day across our organization, said AWS CEO. We are working hard to treat everyone impacted with respect. He added, laid-off employees will receive transitional health benefits, severance, separation pay, job search support, and other services. 
Amazon's cloud computing arm is easily one of the company's most profitable sectors. Even amid the ongoing economic tech turmoil of the past year, AWS has remained a growing moneymaker. In its most recent quarterly report, Amazon noted that AWS sales had increased 20% year-over-year and that AWS income had gone up about 2% between the end of 2021 and the end of 2022. Amazon's size of business has grown significantly over recent years, driven by customer demand for the cloud and for the unique value AWS provides. Apparently, though, that growth wasn't enough to justify keeping AWS workers on board. The explanation for the new Amazon cuts was to reorganize priorities and efficiency, though there could be other reasons at play behind the restructure. Amazon may have accidentally over-advertised and over-hired for AWS jobs by a factor of three in 2022. The sector posted nearly 25,000 job openings online when it was only approved to recruit for under 8,000, according to documents leaked by Insider in March. Amazon has denied this report. In total, this newest wave of Amazon layoffs will impact about 9,000 workers. That's on top of the 18,000 the company already slashed earlier this year. AWS employees were affected in the earlier round of January cuts too, along with employees in the Amazon's grocery, health, and robotics division. All combined, Amazon's 2023 layoffs are the largest in the company's nearly 30-year history. AT&T's new 5G home internet service called AT&T Internet Air. Recently, Verizon and T-Mobile have been making big news by offering cheap home internet through their wireless 5G network. Now, AT&T is launching a 5G home internet service called AT&T Internet Air to compete with T-Mobile and Verizon's 5G service. This new AT&T Internet Air is a wireless home internet service that runs off of the AT&T network. This new service costs $55 a month, and the router will come free with the service. As of March of this year, Internet Air delivers typical download speeds between 40 to 140 megabits per second. These speeds are based off of current internal data and are very dependent upon the connection the OrFi hub can achieve with the AT&T wireless network. According to AT&T, Internet Air has no data caps. Unlike current AT&T DSL plans, this means AT&T Internet Air customers can stream all the videos they want without worrying about their data cap. AT&T is offering a seven-day worry-free test. If you don't like the service, cancel the service in the first seven days and return all equipment within 21 days to receive a full refund. With your new AT&T Internet Air service, you will get a free OR-Fi hub that will act as your modem and Wi-Fi router. Chromebooks just got a video editor that takes all the hassle out of movie making. 
Let Google Photos do the hard work for you with new movie creator feature. Chromebook owners can now avail themselves of the ability to quickly and easily put together and edit movies thanks to Google Photos. This new video editing functionality was revealed by Google last month, but it's now rolling out to all Chromebook users. The way it works is that you can choose the option to create a movie in Google Photos, then pick a theme. Then select relevant elements, and in this case, the friends you want to star in the clip. The movie creator will then pull images and videos of those friends from Google Photos, automatically putting together some footage and even intelligently picking sections out from longer video clips, cutting and trimming itself, basically. And if you prefer, you can put together your own selection and indeed add clips from local files on the Chromebook too. Whatever the case, once you've got that initial set of clips to combine into a movie, you can then mess around with it in the movie editor. It's possible to cut down various clips as needed and filters, play with elements like the brightness and so on. Finally, you can throw in a stock soundtrack to liven things up. Most Chromebooks will already have Google Photos installed, but if that isn't the case, you can go to the Play Store and just download the app. Video editing on Chromebooks is pretty limited in terms of available software, and not everyone wants to use a web-based editor. So, this built-in feature is a very welcome functionality to have. The automation aspect of getting the movie creator to draw through your media and put together something within your specified guidelines, hey, that's pretty cool. And it takes a lot of effort out of rooting through your picks and clip selection, which can be a pretty daunting task if you are like me, having lots of digital media. Granted, this may never be quite as good as tailoring something yourself, but it's a seriously convenient option to have all the legwork done for you. As Google notes, all it takes is a few clicks here and there, and you got yourself a video clip, though you still need to edit, but even then, you can go with a minimal effort approach, of course. NASA PowerHack extends Voyager 2 mission even longer. The interstellar traveler is gradually losing power, but a clever tweak means it can continue running all of its scientific instruments. At 12 billion miles from Earth, Voyager 2 is so far that it takes more than 22 hours for NASA's signal to reach the probe. With its power gradually diminishing, mission planners thought they might have to shut down one of its five scientific instruments next year. But a newly implemented plan has resulted in a welcome delay. A recent adjustment in which the probe redirects a tiny amount of power meant for an onboard safety system means all five scientific instruments aboard Voyager 2 can stay active until 2026. According to a NASA Jet Propulsion Lab press release, there is a modicum of risk involved as the affected system protects Voyager 2 from voltage irregularities. But NASA says the probe can now keep its science instruments turned on for a while longer. Voyager 2, along with its twin companion Voyager 1, are the probes that just keeps on ticking. Launched in 1977, the spacecraft visited several planets in the outer solar system 
before tickling the outer fringes of the heliosphere, a protective bubble-like region of space that surrounds the sun and shields us from harmful radiation pouring in from interstellar space. The probes are still active and gathering unprecedented data about the heliosphere and its protective qualities. The science data that the voyagers are returning gets more valuable the further away from the sun they go, so we are definitely interested in keeping as many science instruments operating as long as possible. The Voyager Project scientists at NASA JPL explain in the release. Generators on both probes lose power each year as a result of a continual decay process. This hasn't affected their science gathering, but mission planners have had to turn off heaters and other non-essential systems to compensate for the ongoing power loss. For Voyager 2, it was getting to the stage where one science instrument needed to be turned off soon, as early as next year. As a result of the newly implemented hack, Voyager 2 is now using a small amount of backup power provision for an onboard safety mechanism designed to protect the craft from potentially damaging voltage spikes. The probe is stealing some of this juice, not a lot, to keep all five of the science instruments on. Although the spacecraft voltage will not be tightly regulated as a result, even after more than 45 years in flight, the electrical systems on both probes remain relatively stable, minimizing the need for a safety net, according to NASA JPL. The engineering team is also able to monitor voltage and respond if it fluctuates too much. If the new approach works well for Voyager 2, the team may implement it on Voyager 1 as well. Voyager 1 passed the heliosphere in 2012, while its twin did the same in 2018, the gap being the result of Voyager's 2 slower speed and alternate direction. An onboard scientific instrument failed early during the Voyager 1 mission, making it less reliant on power than Voyager 2. Voltage spikes are a minor risk at this stage of the mission, and the payoff, more science from Voyager 2 is worth it, according to the Voyager's project manager at JPL. We've been monitoring the spacecraft for a few weeks, and it seems like this new approach is working. One of the greatest achievements in spaceflight history just got an extension, and for that we should all be profoundly grateful. It's incredible, but after all these years, NASA is still able to squeeze some added life from these pioneering probes. The computers and power supply aboard Voyages 1 and 2. An astronomy student was hired by NASA only as a summer job. On his own initiative, he plotted the locations of each planet. Then he plotted where each planet would be if a spaceship passed it at a certain speed. To his astonishment, it almost formed a straight line. He showed it to his boss. They realized an alignment like this might not show up for another thousand years. So NASA sent out two probes, using the slingshot effect of each planet to speed it on to the next one, allowing for the first close-up shots of most of the planets. The Voyager missions were designed to take advantage of a planetary alignment that allowed a grand tour. It is a six-year window that happens about once every 175 years. The next one begins in 2153. 
The computers aboard Voyagers 1 and 2 are embedded systems. The onboard computers are called Computer Command Systems and also known as CCS. Voyagers 1 and 2 each carry six onboard computers, originally organized as a distributed system consisting of three dual redundant computers. There's a lot of software on board these space vehicles. The computers designed by the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, controls all major spacecraft systems, monitors the spacecraft's health, maintains temperature inside of the spacecraft, manages the computers that controls the 11 onboard scientific instruments by sending them commands. The computers employed an 18-bit instruction word with a 6-bit opcode and a 12-bit address, and it has an 18-bit data word. The flight data subsystem was a new custom design in CMOS with a 128 register, nibble serial, CPU, and 8,096 words of 16-bit RAM. It ran about 80,000 instructions per second. By the way, at that time, the popular Intel 8080 CPU ran 290,000 instructions per second. In 1977, when the Voyages were launched, Radio Shack released a TRS-80 running with a Zilog Z80 CPU at 580,000 instructions per second. With their snail-like clock rates and tiny memories, Voyages 1 and 2 have traveled over billions of miles and through intense radiation belts while continuing to send priceless scientific data back to Earth. The computers may seem very primitive by today's standards, but so far they have shepherded the voyages for 50 years. The mission lasted so long because almost everything was hardwired. The computers are nearly identical to the embedded computer developed for the Viking spacecraft that went to Mars. The Voyager computers are constructed entirely of transistor-to-transistor logic or TTL logic chips because that's how things were done in the early 1970s. The paired Voyager computers used dual-redundant plate-wired read-write memory, which works like magnetic core memory, but uses wire-plated with a magnetic coating. The computer is an interrupt-driven computer and runs bare metal code. There is no operating system on these computers. Voyager's instrument did not have the power budgets or the available time for custom computer development, and microprocessors were far too new at the time, so the electrical engineers working on these projects created simple systems using hardwire logic. The 11 instruments on the two identical Voyager spacecraft have helped to alter our understanding of the solar system. We also know from these instruments at least the one still powered up and working, that the two Voyager spacecrafts have now traveled beyond the solar system's boundary and into interstellar space. In addition to these 11 scientific instruments, the Voyager spacecraft carry a gold-plated LP record that encodes sounds and images, just in case one or both spacecraft are discovered by other civilizations eons from now. One of the sounds on the record is a message from Jimmy Carter, who was the president when the Voyagers launched. Carter said, we cast this message into the cosmos. Along with these recordings, we sent these other civilizations 
early examples of our embedded computer technology circa the middle 1970s. A radioisotope thermoelectric generator was installed on Voyages 1 and 2 to supply the electricity to operate the 11 instruments. The power supply uses radioactive material. Because the engineers who built Voyages 1 and 2 knew the spacecraft would venture too far from the sun to use solar power, they opted for what's called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. A supply of radioactive material produces heat as it decays, and the generator converts that heat into electricity. We are exposed to radioactivity every day, often from the foods we eat and products that we use. Some of these objects may pose a health risk, but most of them are a harmless part of our everyday environment. For example, about 80% of standard smoke detectors contain a small amount of radioactive isotope. In almost all cases, you get more exposure to radiation if you take a ride in a plane or a dental x-ray. With scale of volume, we can bring down the cost of a radioisotope thermoelectric generator to affordable cost. If we can solve the issue of safely sealing the radioactive material in case of an auto collision, we don't need electric recharging stations for electric vehicles. We don't need to worry about how far you can drive an EV between recharges. We do have flight data recorders or black boxes that are built to survive an air crash. Each radioisotope thermoelectric generator measures 16 inches in diameter, 20 inches in length, and weighs 86 pounds. The size and weight of the radioisotope thermoelectric generator aboard each Voyager is far less than that of the weight and size total number of lithium batteries in a car. Besides, we only need a fraction of the material. We definitely do not need a radioisotope thermoelectric generator that can power a car for over 50 years. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, technology, the workplace, and how all of these fit together. Or in this case, how they break apart. I'm going to talk about something, and it is, it's in regards to something that came out of the pandemic. And this is an important thing. This is something that is absolutely crucial for success in the business, workplace, all of that. But its origins, the, the whole backstory, I'm going to give you the parallel, goes back a few years. Uh, all right, a, a few centuries. All right, it's a few millennia. Who are we kidding? The Tower of Babel. I want you to think about the Tower of Babel here for just a moment, and this gives us root into where we're going. And the Tower of Babel, the story is is a basic, simple story from the Bible. It's 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 really short. It's uh, I, 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 from memory. I think it's all of about uh, eight to ten verses. Uh, but it's it's this tale of people who tried to build a tower that reached to the heavens, and they said, "If we reach the heavens, we will be like God." And God said, no, I don't think so. 
you guys got a few things messed up, but you know, you guys are, are really getting ahead of yourselves. You're going to hurt yourselves and you just can't do this. So what he did was he confounded the languages of all of the people. So somebody said, you know, hey, hand me that hammer. And the guy gave him a saw and there was a lot of confusion and so forth. And that all happened just like that. They were not able to complete tasks because they spoke different languages. They could not communicate effectively with each other. This resulted in chaos and the abandonment of projects. Now, I bring this forward to modern day. We bring this forward to the pandemic. And we bring this forward to we have had a disruption in communication between, and I'm not picking on either of these groups or I mean any of the groups that could be involved because there's there's crossover in this, but primarily we're talking about boomers and Gen Z, and it doesn't matter. I, I you know, it, there are people who are going to be in Gen X and uh, Gen Y that are also going to suffer some of this throughout because we went from a workplace where everybody was in the same office to, uh, and and this was overnight. We're we're talking about roughly March 20th, maybe a week or two earlier or later, depending on where you worked and and all of that. But we're talking about all of a sudden people were separated. Now, this is about the time where some of the Gen Z people were moving into the workplace. We're talking about a time where some of the uh, the different learning methods, college and high school, all of that, that all turned into remote work, remote learning and so forth. So you, you get an idea there. There's a, all of a sudden we're changing how we're communicating. And some people were already very comfortable with it and they became more comfortable with it because that's all they had. And some people were uncomfortable with it because they had not done that a whole lot. They had dealt with face-to-face communications. They had dealt with a lot of those phone calls and conversations and not dealing with poking at their smartphone with their thumbs, typing on a keyboard. We are seeing some challenges in regards to communication. And these challenges are going to be, they're going to have these echo, uh, these ripple effects for the coming decade as we start to figure out what we're going to be doing about this. One of the biggest reasons recently cited by by managers, they did a study and the difficulty with working with Gen Z employees was their poor communication skills. They could communicate via digital. They could communicate via the smartphone or or via instant messaging. But they could not put together words in a face-to-face conversation. They struggled with phone calls. And there's a a distinct change in how people uh, work and how people, uh, their drive was different. I mean, these these are problems that, that come along. I will tell you that the pandemic had a lot of people in the younger generation, no offense to Gen Z, I mean, really, no offense to Gen Z, but they were where, where we normally enter the workplace and we're, we're gung-ho, we're ready to change the world. All of a sudden, they're at home and they can't change anything. 
So that's that that led to a whole struggle. And there's all kinds of these different ripple effects and and how we look at it different generations and we need to get along. We need to work together. So one of the things I'm going to suggest is we need to start providing and being open to feedback, a constructive feedback, a supportive feedback. And it's it's essential that we teach people how to do communication, especially face-to-face communication. We need to build that up and we need to make sure that people are stepping out of their comfort zones and doing those face-to-face communications. Likewise, boomers, you need to learn how to do text communications, how to type uh, and, and learn all of the shorthand. It's uncomfortable. It's a lot. It's like learning a new language. But without doing this, we're not going to be able to move forward. I will tell you, in coming decade, where we're going to see the best advances in any businesses is going to be that communication gap and bridging it and bringing people together in the workplace. Not maybe physically, but mentally and verbally and using the written word. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Online TV streaming services have taken the world by storm. More and more people are cutting the cord and canceling their traditional cable and satellite TV subscriptions. Spectrum lost over 2,600 TV customers every day in the first quarter of 2023 as cord cutting speeds up. Charter Communications, the parent company of Spectrum, has once again lost 241,000 TV customers in the first quarter of 2023. Spectrum also reported that they lost over 220,000 voice customers as many Americans turn away from traditional phone lines and TV services. Spectrum did add 76,000 internet customers during that time. The rate of cord cutting is once again speeding up in 2023 as in 2022. Spectrum only lost 112,000 TV customers during the same time. This means that the growth of cord cutting has more than doubled over the last year. Spectrum did add 686,000 wireless customers in the fourth quarter of 2022. This comes as Spectrum tries to use wireless to offset its TV and voice losses. In the first quarter, we've made significant progress on our three key initiatives, evolution, expansion, and execution, said Chris Winfrey, president and CEO of Charter. Our customer-first strategy is focused on delivering a differentiated, converged connectivity product that delivers the fastest speeds and saves customers money, while simultaneously driving growth and creating long-term value for charter shareholders. Spectrum did see revenues up 3.4% to $13.7 billion. Internet revenue grew by 4.9% year after year thanks to new customers and rate adjustments, as Spectrum says. Spectrum says video revenue is down about 2.1% to $4.3 billion dollars, And Spectrum says this drop in video revenue is driven by a higher mix of lower-priced video packages with Charter's video customers' base 
and a decline in video customers during the last year, partly offset by promotional rate step-ups and video rate adjustments that pass through programmer rate increases. Spectrum did report that mobile services revenue totaled $497 million, up 28.3% year over year. Overall, Spectrum, like Comcast and others, is facing the fact that cord cutting is speeding up with no signs that it will slow down. Comcast lost a huge number of cable subscriptions. Comcast reported that it lost 614,000 net video subscribers in the first quarter, bringing its total down to around 15 million. That's a net loss of roughly 7 million video subscriptions in the last seven plus years. The cable operator is not alone in its video misery. DirecTV has lost more than 12 million satellite subscribers since AT&T purchased it in 2015, and Dish and Charter's Spectrum have also lost huge chunks of its audience. Why, you ask? It's too easy to say cord cutting because cord cutting is only the symptom, not the disease. The real problem is the high prices that cable and satellite operators must charge to offset the always increasing carriage demands from programmers. Over the years, networks such as CBS, ABC, Fox, and NBC, as well as must-have sports channels such as ESPN, have demanded that the cable and satellite services pay more and more money to carry their signals. And if the pay TV ops refuse, the networks pull their signals, forcing the pay TV ops to explain to an angry customer base why their favorite programs are no longer available. It's basically a game of hostage. Pay up or lose your customers. The cable and satellite services usually pay up, particularly if it's a channel that would cause large subscribers' defections. But once they pay up, they immediately begin planning how to pass the costs along to their customers in higher monthly bills and tricky hidden fees such as regional sports network surcharges and broadcast fees. With the emergence of cheaper streaming services such as Netflix, HBO Max, and Disney+, Plus, many cable and satellite customers have cut the cord and decided to watch less, pay less, and enjoy it more even if it means they might go without a favorite channel or sports network. They are happy with their decision because they are saving so much money. The irony here is that the networks that trigger this situation are now crying that they are not making as much money from the cable and satellite bundle because there are fewer subscribers. Well, that's what happens when you kill the golden goose. Regional sports networks are now feeling some of the pain of their actions with Diamond Sports, the owner of 19 Bali Sports RSNs, declaring bankruptcy last month, and there will be more fallout with more RSNs and other channels forced to lay off more employees and perhaps radically restructure their operations. The projected decline in subscribers will mean a drop of about $25 billion in cable subscription revenue, plus associated advertising losses for the largest U.S. media companies including Disney, Comcast NBC Universal, AT&T's WarnerMedia, Viacom CBS, Fox, Discovery, Sinclair, and AMC Networks. 
media executives are finally accepting the decline of cable TV as they plot a new path forward. At least three large U.S. media companies expect the number of U.S. households that subscribe to a traditional pay TV bundle will fall to about 50 million in the next five years. At 50 million subscribers, it's unclear the current pay TV model can survive without falling further. The jury is still out on if streaming economics will convince investors to breathe new life into traditional media companies. There's a consensus emerging in American media companies. They expect about 25 million U.S. households to cancel their pay TV subscriptions over the next five years. This is on top of the 25 million homes that have already cut the cord since 2012. At least three major media companies now expect pay TV subscriptions to stabilize around 50 million, according to people familiar with the matter. The projected decline in subscribers will mean a drop of about $25 billion in cable subscription revenue, plus associated advertising losses for the largest U.S. media companies, including Disney, Comcast, NBC, Universal, AT&T, Warner Media, Viacom, CBS, Fox, Discovery, Sinclair, and AMC Networks. This assumption has created a tectonic shift in the media industry. In the last three months, Disney, NBC Universal, Warner Media, and Viacom CBS have all announced major reorganizations. They've replaced old leaders, consolidated divisions, laid off tens of thousands of employees, and pivoted to streaming video. American viewers can now choose among streaming services from most of the major players, including Disney+, Plus, Warner Media's HBO Max, NBC's Universal Peacock, Viacom's CBS Paramount, Discovery+, Plus, and AMC+. Plus. The plan is simple enough. Hope enough people sign up for subscription streaming services to make up for cable TV subscriber losses. For more than a decade, TNT and TBS ratings had lived off reruns of hit broadcast shows, Seinfeld, Friends, Family Guy, The Office, and so on. Now there was a problem. Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video had acquired digital rights to the same catalog of reruns. Instead of having to tune into a cable network at a certain time, viewers could consume entire seasons of shows on demand without suffering through commercial interruptions. The best path forward for media companies is if Americans suddenly decide to stop canceling cable. That cash flow can then be redirected to streaming services as the industry's new global growth engine. There's at least a chance a combination of live news and sports combined with inertia and laziness can keep a diminished bundle alive. Charter actually added 102,000 pay TV subscribers in the second quarter. But that's almost certainly an anomaly. Comcast reported a net loss of 477,000 video subscribers last quarter. AT&T, which owns DirecTV, reported a net loss of 886,000 video subscribers in the same quarter. Media companies could team up and decide to recreate the bundle model with their new streaming services. Unlike the cable bundle, a streaming bundle wouldn't eliminate the make-your-own option 
as each service can be purchased a la carte. But investors may not mind if companies take revenue discounts if it means growth. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you have, uh, you've received some more packages and you wanted to talk oh, about them. Oh, I so have indeed. Yes. In my ear, not at the moment, but in my ear from Antlion Audio, their new Kimura Duo in-ear headset, just like earbuds. Okay. It has a collection of interesting choices. Most people will find this beneficial. Some may see as compromisers. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm fiendish about audio transparency, the true meaning of fidelity. Yeah. yeah. I was hoping these might deliver that, but I'm sorry, they don't. I did my testing with familiar mm. tracks, George Zell, Diana Krall, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, and some classic rock. Okay. And I could both hear and feel, maybe I should say perceive, the nest of little equalization tricks in their design. Okay. Now, to be fair, not many prospective users listen well enough to realize or recognize those. Okay. Also, a small gripe on the earbuds, the left, right, and mic phones legends mandated my magnifying glass. Oh, oh, okay. Not good. Yeah. Now, intraoral design, that's geek speak for inside the ear. Yeah. That design choice blocks a lot of ambient air coupling to the ear canal, so it performs a high degree of reduction of ambient sound. That's okay. good sometimes and bad sometimes. Right. I didn't see anything obvious to alert users to that, but don't wear these while you're out in traffic. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> and another thing, too, whenever you've got something that's really blocking out the ambient sound, you have to be really careful about the volume. Because, Very true. Because, yeah, then you can you can kick up some serious volume in your head and mess with your ears. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a Kimura Duo. Kimura is K-I-M-U-R-A. Okay. Kimura Duo. It's got a collection of interesting choices, may or may not appeal to you. Okay. Now, let's go to something that appeals to you and me both. And <laughs> this is Klein Tools. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've yeah, been you saved the best for last. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, how, how, how much do you have? For, uh, is it like a lot of Klein Tool stuff? I have a lot. Yes. Okay, I give right. a lot away and I keep a lot. And uh, uh, how many hammers do you need? You know, it comes down to that. I've been trying to organize my workbench spaces better. And you know, I've got a workbench space in my garage. I've got one in the basement. But my collection of compromised drill bit and socket sets was not well organized and mm-hmm, none of yeah. them quite complete. And that always cost me more time <laughs> and grief. I needed to do two things to get yeah. new full sets and to put them in the places where they're used and not make the same mistake of turning them into migrants. that so would go to where the latest project was happening and often get left there. I don't ever do that. I never have a problem. Uh, oh, oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Guilty. Go on. Sorry. Well, I got in touch with Klein Tools, and yeah. here's what I got and where it lives. Mm-hmm. I got a 29-piece drill bit set in the basement tool cart next to my deluxe Sjöberg workbench. Yeah. <laughs> Every size from 1 16th to 1 half at 1 64th inch increments. Nice. Nice. Okay. You're not going to miss the size with that. They're black oxide finished heat-treated steel with 118 degree points and their metal body has all the sizes marked mm, a second mm, mm. has 15 drill bits from one sixteenth to one half in 30 seconds uh, uh th- that increment and that's in the garage tool cart 
a third set, 13 pieces from a 16th inch to a 64th by 64th. Well, I ended up with that in the garage car too. <laughs> I emptied what survived from my toolbox into the drill bit holder on the side of my Vivor power tool organizer, which is itself mounted on the side mm -hmm. of the seven rack out there where all the battery chargers are. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, also from client from my ratchet wrenches and power wrenches. My basement tool cart now has two sets of three eighth inch drive sockets, a standard size SAE 20 piece set mm -hmm, and a 13 nice. piece metric set. Metric. Yeah, 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 yeah. You ever tried putting together a cart with only SAE sockets? I have I have struggled a few times with various things where you I'm know, using racks, the wrong sockets. Are, yeah. You know, What's an M6? Racks are always metric. Yes. And yeah, if you don't yeah. have metric, what are you going to do? And then you get the little four corner ones. And if you don't have a 12 point, you're in trouble. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, everybody thinks you need the long sockets like you need for changing spark plugs. Mm -hmm. But try fitting them behind something when you've only got about two inches to oh, manipulate yes, it. Yes. Yes. I, I, yeah, I've struggled with that before, too. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I am now equipped to accessorize. <laughs> Very cool. That you know, this is this is something we've we, we've been talking about Klein tools for well, for years now. Years, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is a this is something that how how often how often do they send you something? And, and oh, I get the, a package the, a week as a rule. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, I and I hate to ask this. How often do they send you something and, and you're disappointed? Never actually disappointed, but some of it isn't relevant to me. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it's probably out of your view. Uh, I got a hard hat with a light on it. When yeah. am I going to wear that? <laughs> when and you're out on the construction site. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a new version of something they had sent me before, and I gave the before one away to uh, uh, to the schools. Yeah. Uh, Glow-in-the-dark fish tape. Okay, well, I, I I can see using that, yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, but yeah. but but then I've done a lot of fishing network wires around, so I, I get uh, you and me both, brother. Yeah, <laughs> you know I have to think about whether I want IP cameras outside the house. Yeah, that means POE wiring, and that's not fun. No, it isn't. Well, that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, May the 4th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 5th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, May 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And to confirm... The telephone is 347-278-7320.
The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting Thursday, May the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, May 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.